I think all of us realize to some degree that the world is in turmoil. Uh, however, we might uh, use that word, how strongly we might use it. The past year and a half has been what ought to be a wake-up call for all of mankind, and yet we doubt that is so. And, and it, uh, at least here in the United States, uh, people have been apparently somewhat quick to forget uh, what uh, what the problems we had, and maybe too quick to uh, to remember or to forget to uh, uh, remember what was going on, and to resume pretty much it seems business as usual. Uh, if you watch any of the sports events on TV. The stadiums are pretty much packed. I mean, I've watched uh, parts of a couple of the games, and they talk about the stadium being full, being sold out. And the masks uh, among those 20 to 30 or 40,000 people, very, very few of them and far between. The restaurants are busy. Uh, the economy appears to be surging. Uh, more so than what even the economists thought it might. That they, they're now considering when they might, how the Fed might control the money, what they might do, because things are changing much more rapidly than expected. And yet, here we are today wearing masks. That uh, We have this problem going on around us, and a number of us, as uh, was Mr. Wakefield mentioned, there are, a number of us that have been afflicted by this particular virus, very contagious matter, and so we wanted to exercise caution. And even as you said, we do appreciate the cooperation. We, it's a matter of consideration not only for ourselves, but especially for those with whom we come in contact. So we're here wearing masks again. Sometimes people have short memories. Sometimes. Uh, I, I would imagine a, there are a number of us in here that are old enough to have had relatives who went through the depression. Uh, if you've had, uh, if you have relatives who've gone through the depression, no doubt uh, you have some acquaintance with the fact that people went through the depression had a long memory, many of them, and they were conservative in their financial considerations. You know, they will joke about putting the money in their savings account goes under the mattress. Uh, they were going to not ex- exceed. Uh, their income, very careful to be uh, financially conservative and not going into debt if at all possible. So they had long memories, and so they they were scarred, if you can, if I can use that word, they were scarred by the things that they had to endure during the Depression. And uh, I, I, I didn't, I was not part of it, uh, but I had brothers and sisters that were alive and talked about the sugar rationing and the, the things that they had, had to endure at the time. So there were many adults that went through that, do have long memories. But the world as a whole right now, I don't think associates the problem that they're experiencing. Maybe they didn't either during the Depression, I don't know for sure. But they're not connecting it with the, the fact that the world is in trouble because of disobeying God's law. The United States is, is in turmoil. We still have this surging economy, but we're in political turmoil. And also because of the uh, vaccination issues and the uh, other, the uh, wanting to be out and, and new things, we have this medical turmoil as well. 
But when we look at all the considerations, and I'm going to go through a few of them, we go through the considerations that are there. If you want a title for the sermon, which will have a little more meaning perhaps as we get to it into the latter part of the sermon, the title of the sermon is Collision Ahead. I want to review a few of the headlines and the crises, and I said a few, not all of them, but a few of the headlines and crises present in our world today and remind us of the warnings that God gives to us about what is yet to come so that our lives take on the proper perspective and proper activities. First area I'd like to talk about, and I'm going to lump these, these uh, three items together in going through some of the headlines, and bear with me as I do read a little bit from some, some of these articles. But the first area I want to talk about is, is concerns weather, famine, and plagues. And none of these items will be new to you, but perhaps uh, what I'm trying to do here is give enough information so that the quantity of the information makes an impact that will last beyond the afternoon, beyond the day or whatever. We understand where we are in the world at this time. Here's an article from the L.A. Times of June 19th. And this has to do with the uh, the drought that uh, we're experiencing in, in the United States. And most of the comments I'll make here concern our country, but to some of them other areas of the world. This comes from, again, the L.A. Times. Almost half of the United States has been in drought since the start of this year, 2021. Half the country. Compounding factors are droughts from previous years that have escalated to extreme dryness. 30% of California's population is in a drought emergency, and the nation's two biggest reservoirs on the Colorado River, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, are two-thirds Empty. Uh, not a great sites for tourists these days, but uh, supply a great deal of water to the western part of the country. Says droughts can and aren't, or droughts aren't dictated by temperature, but rather moisture levels. A drought occurs when precipitation is lower than normal, and so the droughts have in five categories: from moderate, severe, extreme. Well, besides being abnormally dry, the first one, but also an exceptional drought. Almost every part of the western United States is in drought. Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico, fairly long list of states there, are all experiencing extreme and exceptional droughts, the two most severe types of droughts. So... They're certainly handicapped on that deal. And, of course, we also are aware of the fact that we have raging wildfires in the western part of the country. And this is an article from ABC News about what is called the bootleg fire. It's now the third largest fire in Oregon state history as firefighters try to limit its spread in extremely dry conditions. The blaze has grown to nearly 400,000 acres in southern Oregon, by Thursday morning and remained just 38% contained. It has climbed to the top of trees to engulf the state, according to records dating back to 1900. So going all the way back to well over a century, this is the third largest fire that has now consumed 600 square miles. 
Think about that. You, uh, use whatever factors you want. Ten miles wide and 60 miles deep. Fifteen miles wide and 40 miles deep. If it's all put it all the, the fire together. Twenty miles wide and 30 miles deep. That's, that's a huge fire. A lot of burning up and a lot of loss. And then as here, thir- nearly 90 large wildfires are burning in 13 states with more than 2.7 million acres burned so far this year. Something God talks about. We'll read a couple of scriptures in a moment about this. And then in Washington Post, there was an article about this fire, the bootleg fire, that points out, it says, that it's so dry out here on the ground that to be able to extinguish the fire completely, to be able to have what we call full containment of the fire, we're going to need Mother Nature's help. The spokesperson for the firefighting effort uh, told the Washington Post. This means, quote, a season-ending weather event, unquote, which usually comes in the form of widespread wetting rain, significant wetting rain or snow, was the comment. So in that part of southern Oregon, that kind of weather event is not expected until late fall, perhaps late October or November. So this is anticipated to go on for a number for a number of months yet in the future. An article here from well, I started the article from one of our news and prophecy sections. But I want to a couple of them I want to refer to. This from uh, July 8th. There's a brief article here about starvation in Madagascar. The southern part of Madagascar, an island off Africa's eastern coast, is in the throes of a severe summer, a severe famine, and its worst drought in decades. 1.14 million people are what's called food insecure. That means they're in danger of lacking enough food, and 400,000 people are headed toward starvation. Over the last four months, the number of young children in acute malnutrition has almost doubled. The World Food Program reported that 41 million people in 43 countries are now teetering on the edge of starvation, with 584,000 people already experiencing famine-like conditions across, listed now here, Madagascar, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Nigeria, Burkina, Faso, and Yemen. This number has increased from 27 million in 2019. So from 27 million to 41 million. Major issue for feeding millions of people. And I won't go into all the detail, but they're from July 22nd, which is just is in the, uh, the news again, the news and prophecy section for the one that is just coming out. It has to do with Australia's mice plague. And there was a, an article about that recently in the previous one. But much more going on. It says here that the mice are everywhere, so that the stench permeates the air. Poorly sealed homes allow mice inside, that their ongoing plague are now threatening the crops. I point out here that mice have overrun a prison in South in New South Wales, forcing administrators to temporarily close and move 400-plus prisoners, 200 guards to other facilities. Mice ate through prison wiring and ceiling tiles, making the building unsafe. So that is reminiscent, as mentioned in the article, of what happened in Egypt in ancient times. And then in terms of just COVID-19, I picked this up from Wikipedia last evening. For the United States, 
the confirmed cases of COVID-related diseases is 34,341,000 approximately. And that's up 50, almost 59,000 recently. And in the United States, then there are 615,752 deaths. And there's been 319 updated on July, on, uh, July 23rd. Globally, almost 193 million people have been uh, afflicted by it. And there are now over 4,140,000 deaths due to this plague that they were conspiring. Let's turn over to uh, Leviticus 26. Just look at a couple of scriptures related to this. Leviticus 26, verses 19 and 20. Here God is talking about Israel being punished should she break his law. And, of course, that has happened. He says, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Now, we aren't starving yet in the United States, part of modern-day Israel. But nonetheless, this is conveys to us what was not only will happen to us yet to come, but is happening also all around the world. Over in Matthew 24... Matthew 24, we'll read verse 3. Of course, this is what is called the Olivet Prophecy. The disciples are asking, he said, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How can we know when this is going to happen? Give us some indication. And he says in, I'll read verses 7 and 8. And nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I don't really have any section this afternoon to talk about wars and rumors of wars that uh, will be coming. That's just one of the items not not listed uh, as far as what it will go through. But he says there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places points out that then these are the beginning of sorrows, things he's listed so far, that this is just the beginning. So perhaps that's what we're experiencing currently, is we are beginning to see this, this beginning of sorrows. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 28, which is the chapter that goes along with Leviticus 26 to talk about cursings and blessings. The blessings for obedience, the curses for disobedience. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So we find them listed, part of it, in verse 21. And the Eternal will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever and inflammation, 
with severe burning fever, with a sword, with scorching, and with the mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Eternal will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. We pick it up in verse 27. Some words, verses here, words here in a couple of verses are, I think, of note. Verse 27, the Eternal will strike you with with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, with the itch, from which you cannot be healed. Now, we have vaccines. Man endeavors to try to find a way to solve these medical problems. Points out again in verse 35, the Eternal will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils, which cannot be healed, and from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Another note, verse of note, verse 59 of Deuteronomy 20, 28, said, Then the Eternal will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues. But we, we're coming up on clearly a little more than a year and a half of this one. Might we consider that prolonged? We thought maybe we were coming out of it, at least in our country, because of the vaccination. But God says these things that come upon us will be prolonged. They're not going to be, a man won't find a way to avoid them. Great and prolonged plagues and serious and prolonged sicknesses. The afflictions are going to be brought by God and not, will not have a way out. Jeremiah 46. Interesting verse. And it does not directly relate to Israel, because the prophecy is actually given here against Egypt. But I think it does carry meaning to what will happen at the end of the age. In terms of this deal, it says in Deuteronomy or Jeremiah 46, verses 10 and 11, For this is the day of the eternal God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword will, shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the eternal God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm. And we're trying to find a cure here. O virgin, the daughter of Egypt, in vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. So God is telling mankind that we will not, we cannot figure out our way out of the curses that are coming. The weather, weather problems, the plagues, the famines that are going on right now may be simply a foretaste, certainly, of what is yet to come. Another item in the news has to do with violent crime. In Matthew 24, let's turn there first to the scriptures again. In Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, Matthew 24, verse 37, and it was talking about the days of Noah. It says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what we're to experience at the end of the age is 
draws direct comparison with what was going on in the world when Satan, or when God destroyed the world through the flood at the time of Noah. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be that we as human beings are going to be endeavoring to keep life as normal as usual. We'll talk about normal a little bit later in the sermon. But we go about our business, keep living life uh, entertaining ourselves. And we can see that especially in the Western developed nations, the effort to entertain ourselves. And our commercials are, uh, are just replete with this effort of entertaining ourselves. And it's, so, it's like the mentality sometimes is life's a beach. You know, all we need is a lot of money. We can go have fun. But that's what God says that what it would look like. And so in terms of comparing it at the end of the time of Noah, let's turn back to Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. First, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Eternal saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That should resonate with us today. What the world is not is walking away in pell-mell speed away from God's law. And the Eternal was sorry that he had made men on the earth, and he, he was grieved in his heart. So the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it's coming a time of destruction again in this age. Then in verse 11, it says, The earth was also, also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The, earth, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God says there's going to be a time of great violence at the end of the age, comparing it to the time of Noah. A couple of articles, just to briefly refer to these. Chicago was in the news seemingly almost every day, every other day, but certainly every week. In Chicago, 956 people were shot in the first four months of 2021. 217 more than the same point in 2020, which was a record-setting year for shootings in the Illinois city. So if you do the math, that's a little over 29% increase in the number of shootings from year to year. A total of more than 4,130 people were shot in Chicago last year. And a large number. According to the Tribune, homicides are also up this year compared to 2020. So far, 185 people have been killed, 27 more than at this time last year. So violence in our major cities. Just a couple of them. Chicago, what about Atlanta? According to the table, it was given here, 
The overall crime rate is 78% higher than the average of crimes committed in Georgia as a state. So Atlanta is a dangerous place. It is also 108% higher than the national average. When it comes to violent crimes, Atlanta, Georgia shows a crime rate that is 162% higher than Georgia average. Dangerous city. Last night on the NBC Nightly News, they made reference to something called America's Summer of Violence because the news is so so replete with these things. Pointed out in Washington, D.C., that in 2020, the murders in that city went up 19%. And so far, year to date, 2021, another 2% beyond that for year-to-date numbers. Large cities can be a dangerous place. And looking for a cause, one, one, uh, one answer was the cause was COVID-based frustration, more guns, less police. With the comment, well, if we have less police, the bad guys are going to become good guys. <laughs> no, the bad guys stay bad. And we suffer as a society, we suffer for that. New York City, violent robberies are up 16% in one month. So we live in a dangerous world. Now, you can go do the checking yourself for the uh, on the web very easily and check out cities like Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, other major cities, that we find that violence is a sign of the end of the age in which we're living. Third point, talk about morality. Let's, let's turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, just pointing out one of the obvious comparisons in, in God's word. Breaking into the middle of the sentence, he says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So what happened there and why it happened, we'll look at just a moment, should be a warning to our society. And yet, what is characterized in the Bible in Sodom has no, seemingly has no effect on our society today. So let's turn back to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Eternal said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave. God said what there was going on there was a very grave spiritual matter. So then in chapter 19, verse 1, we know the story where the two angels are going there to rescue Lot and his family. But two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in, in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. They were strangers coming in, so he's practicing something that was traditional at that time. 
and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, here now, my, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. Obviously, he knew what would happen if they stayed in the square, that they were going to be assaulted. He insisted strongly, so they turned in to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, this was not just a few people, not just a a small segment of the city. These were representative of the, the city at large. All the people from every quarter. Again, very common part of the city, very well known, surrounded the house. Now, surrounded the house. I mean, they they didn't want anybody to escape. <laughs> they were there to get the job done, so to speak. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. We've read that many times, but... It, it just seemed to me that it's rather amazing. There was absolutely no shame whatsoever in what they not only practiced, but what they were trying to do to two perfect strangers. They were demanding those angels to be sent out. It talks about our day. You mean, well, is it that bad today in America? Is it that bad today in the world? How bad does it have to be for us to understand what God's concern is about morality? Over in the, the Israel, I don't want to make this just about morality in terms of Sodom per se. Over in Ezekiel 16, there's an interesting scripture. Ezekiel 16, verses 48 through 50. Verse 48, as I live, says the eternal God, neither your sister Sodom nor your, her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Here, God is condemning Jerusalem and Judah in this particular case, just comparing them to, to that city. So he's saying that what they've done is actually worse than what Sodom had been. But he says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. So here's what God, another way God characterizes the city of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Do we have pride in our country today and in the world for what they certain individuals choose to practice? Of course, they have celebrations. There are parades. But he also points out here they had pride in fullness of food and abundance of idleness. When? You have everything you need, you can go on pursuing life in any form and fashion you so choose. Neither does she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Not only did they have the morality problem, they had these other problems as well. They were full and they were proud in general, but they also didn't bother with taking care of those that needed help. Now, there are two sides of that coin. There are, in our political arena... We find those that profess to do, make major changes in order to support those that have need. 
And there are those that say there's a better way other than some of the progressive ideas. Now, God is the only one that plans something, what we'd call a blended capitalized, capitalist, capitalistic social system. He, by having his, his financial plan, he says he rewards hard work. He rewards obedience. But he also says everyone that goes through those things gets rewarded and is blessed, has a responsibility to help those in need. And his plan allows for that. It's a perfectly blended plan. The world can't find that answer. Verse 50 says, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Warning that that happened to Sodom. It's also going to happen to those that are in the world today as well as at that particular time. A couple of comments here. This is from the co-worker letter by Mr. Weston for June. He writes, he says, There is a spirit being, Satan the devil, who knows the potential for which God created mankind, and he is pulling out all stops to thwart and destroy God's plan as he sees his time running out. This is the main reason for the LGBTQ or plus movement. A few years ago, some of you may have thought that we spent too much time talking about this subject, but it should be obvious to all by now that this agenda is aimed squarely against God, who created us male and female for a wonderful purpose. Later in the letter, he says, the promotion of these amoral behaviors is no longer on the fringe, and our children and grandchildren at the youngest ages are being targeted. Yahoo.com recently posted an article about Nickelodeon, which is a cable channel for children, celebrating Pride Month, a whole month set aside of our calendar each year to celebrate this. But they're celebrating it with an animated drag queen leading a sing-along to a very catchy tune, one that will stick in the heads of small children everywhere. Now, it is worthy of note because have you ever tried to memorize something and just have difficulty? Have you ever tried to memorize verses out of the Bible? But if it happens to be one of our hymns, it's much easier. You know, if you, if you want to just think about certain verses, if you can think of the, if it's a, a part of a hymn, it just comes right up, right out. Music is a means by which we do learn. It has a great impact. And for children to be exposed to this, these kinds of things, it is a diabolical plan to affect the minds of our children. The song includes... The song includes updated LGBTQ inclusive lyrics celebrating the diversity of queer families, the importance of loving people for exactly who they are, and the joys of allyship. So, and he mentions then Larry said, notice the word allyship. And uh, before I get on to this, one other a couple of comments, uh, he says, consider dear friends. Where our world was five years ago, and how a spiral has spiraled down morally to where it is today, then consider where we may be in five years. The thought is chilling. It is no coincidence that our moral decline is accompanied by the worst pandemic in a hundred years, by financial troubles, 
Severe weather upsets by a crisis in government and by cyber attacks demanding millions of dollars in ransom and, ma- and causing massive disruptions in basic services. We talk about the cyber attack, and we hear back, wasn't that long ago we had a cyber attack that affected our gas supply along the eastern seaboard. Those things were there. But talking about this influence, a, uh, another minister sent me a link to a performance by the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir. What do you think the title was? We're coming for your children. Words like, we'll convert your children, and you won't even notice. Someone has to teach them not to hate. We're coming for your children. We'll make an ally of you yet. Those are just some of the phrases interspersed in there. It's published online on July the 8th. And, you know, what it reminded me of was watching our virtual choir. These are, look, there must have been anywhere from 75 to 100 men in this choir. All pictures of them all, and a couple of them leading the song. But those kinds of words, it's a warning. They're coming for our children. And our children are exposed to these things, unfortunately. And these matters obviously are prevalent in virtually every, all forms of entertainment today. You can hardly turn on the TV, if you even whether it be a sports show. You still see commercials that promote this. Business conduct guidelines and major companies have this in there to make sure that they, these individuals are not persecuted. It's in our music. It's in our movies, TVs, and it's in our schools and in our commercials. And God warns that this is a big problem and it's going to be even bigger. My fourth point, I'll refer to this one simply as social injustice and let that be a, a coverall for the various things that are unjust and unjust in our society. Over in Deuteronomy 28, the scripture that I think has some broad meaning, I read verse 27 earlier, but here in Deuteronomy 28, verse 28, says, The eternal Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. Now, the word madness can, uh, can literally mean uh, mental illness, and many of our people are afflicted with those kinds of problems. But he points out he's not only madness, which can be more than just mental illness. It can be uh, an issue with judgment, with ideas and concepts. But also he points out confusion of heart. And uh, look in the commentary, those, those words are explained as conveying an inability to know what to do. How to solve a problem. Ideas that we'll try this, we'll try that. Confusion of heart. And of course, what does Jeremiah 10, 23 tell us? Jeremiah 10, verse 23 says, It's not in man 
to direct his own steps. We are not smart enough with just a spirit in man and our brains to figure out how to make life work, to make the world work, work, make governments work. It's not in man. God did not give us that innate ability to solve all the problems that come with being in a physical world. We try to have, you said governments. There, there is a, a, an axiom in business that says in the solution for every problem are seeds for more problems. And that's why you have this effort to get closer and closer to perfection. You fix these, you keep solving these problems. But the, in reality, socially, man cannot solve his problem. We can't devise, design, create, even come up with the idea of a government that will work for everyone fairly. We've all heard the phrase about democracy. That it's, 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 it's the uh, worst form of government except for everything else. <laughs> we think it's a great idea. Humanly speaking, there are many good fruits that have come from it, certainly compared to what exists in totalitarian-type governments. But social injustice, man trying to create a utopian world. And instead of having the utopian world, we end up, this word is called this dystopian world. When you let man go, man's ways go unchecked, it turns into huge problems. And when I... When I got it, when I wanted to look at that, uh, I was trying to make sure I understood, uh, so bear with me. The word woke. No, I know what it means when I, you know, I woke up yesterday. <laughs> I woke up this morning. But what does it mean? Because it is a, now a very, uh, widely used word in our society, in our government. Really, it's pretty, quite simple. Woke is a term originating in the United States that originally referred to awareness about racial prejudice and discrimination. Pretty simple. What's wrong with those words? <laughs> Why do we need another word that sort of masks what the issue is? Anyway, it's there. It subsequently, though, came to encompass an awareness of other issues of social inequality. For instance, regarding gender and sexual orientation. Since the late 2010s, so just past decade, it's also been used as a general term for left-wing political movements and perspectives which emphasize the identity politics of people of color, LGBT people, and women. In other words, you just, a word is used now to talk about any sort of discrimination for any segment of society that feels like they are being isolated and treated unjustly. So woke is there. The phrase, stay awoke, or say woke, emerged in the United States in the 1930s. And I know, I don't think that anybody here was alive in 1930s. But I, probably for most of us, we didn't learn about this word until the last couple of years. Maybe that I'm aware of it. But the effort is that the society wants to solve all the social injustices and make everyone aware of it and find we can find a way to solve these problems. Well, if man, if it's not in man to direct his own steps, what's, what's some of, some of the results of this? Now, I'm not saying all the things are bad because we all know 
that any type of hatred, any type of, of injustice is wrong. God forbids that. He, is, he says racism is wrong. We should not be guilty of that. And we should not hate people for what they do. We hate the sin. We should be supposed to hate what's done, not the people who do it. God says every one of us as human beings, every one of us, you heard Mr. Meredith say this, every one of us is precious in God's eyes. And he will solve these problems. He's going to punish us for these things. But anyway, the point being here is about social injustice and the inability of man to solve his problems. This is coming from the Washington Examiner. Examiner. Oxford University has hired a team of students to diversify and decolonize. Now, that word, in quotes, to talk about getting rid of anything that smacks of imperialism and uh, domination. Decolonize. It's STEM subjects. STEM is an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. And so they're going to analyze this STEM program at this university, obviously one of the greatest universities in the world right now, and to decolonize that program. So what does this mean in practice? So it means reassessing the history of modern measurement, which is tied deeply to the idea of empire. That's why it's called sometimes imperial standardization. We have a foot. 12 inches. What's an inch? In, in uh, many of the countries, it's now the metric system. But it's a meter and uh, a centimeter, etc. So, point is, that's right. They're coming after imperial measures, which is what the units of size and weight employed in the United States are called everywhere else. What we do here, how we measure these things, is elsewhere called imperial measures. So they're saying that these things themselves are inherently either racist or they're bigoted or they're socially unjust. So the state of, another, another point here, a state of California panel in California is looking at ways to root out what it calls white supremacy culture in the mathematics classroom. What are the identifying characteristics of the culture? Among other things, one is excessive emphasis on getting the right answer. Now, we want to root out racism. God wants to get rid of all the bigotry. But deciding whether or not a math problem has the right answer or the wrong answer? Uh, the last time I the class I took in math, if uh, close didn't count. <laughs> Wasn't an approximate answer. There was an answer. And I did not find personally, just for what it's worth, I didn't find that one way or the other it mattered that someone else got consideration that I didn't get. Because the math's a very pure matter, obviously. It's absolute in many ways, and it's a good thing. Mathematic principles are perhaps the purest thing of which we can conceive. One, one writer, it says this is in the book 1984. Uh, it's been a long time since I read this one. But it said, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four, wrote Winston Smith and George Orwell's 1984. If that is granted, all else follows. In other words, if there is a something has absolute, then other things can be figured out. In the novel, Mr. Smith is tortured for announcing the truth. That's a... 
trying to solve the problem, the, the thought, the idea, perhaps, to get rid of these things, get rid of human nature, but applying it inappropriately and coming up with other problems. Here's an article I found. Uh, it was an opinion, frankly, written by Bernard Goldberg about the little things are turning San Francisco in a bad way. He writes, I was based in San Francisco as a correspondent with CBS News in the late 1970s. I remember that, that back then, more than a few of us referred to the city as, quote-unquote, Halloween by the sea. Uh, a good-natured nod to the city's quirkiness. But the most beautiful city in America, as far as I was concerned at that time, but that was a long time ago, now San Francisco is a very dark, sad place. Not only the homeless people whose tents line the streets and sidewalks, is not only they use the sidewalks as their bathrooms, or that at times, that they're at times, they turn violent. It's not only that the city has twice as many fatal drug overdoses as deaths attributed to the coronavirus. It's also what we used to call small stuff, relatively minor infractions such as shoplifting. Recently, he saw a video of a man who rode his bicycle into a San Francisco Walgreens drugstore, loaded up one of his large black trash bags with everything he could get his hands on, hopped back on his bike, and rode out of the store, right past his private security guard. And now in case you're wondering, he writes, how this could happen in broad daylight, no less, on what has become a regular basis. Here's one big factor. In 2014, California's passed Proposition 47 that reclassified nonviolent theft as misdemeanors. As long as the stolen goods are worth less than, he writes, wait for it, $950. So you could walk into a store and shoplift anything less than about $1,000, and you would not be prosecuted, would not be stopped in many cases. In most cases, they did not... They, they, they stopped stopping people because it would turn to a violent engagement. And even if the police came, when they checked the value of it, if it was less than $150, there was no arrest. So what is the business to do? Pretty much decriminalize shoplifting. Don't be shocked if you do that. Don't be shocked if you get more shoplifting. Thieves may have no morals, but they do have a modicum of intelligence, what we like to call street smarts. So they deliberately go in and shoplift something less worth less than $950, knowing that won't be a problem. We worry about, so we rightly worry about big things, we should. But little things matter too. Once the little things become tolerated, it's no, not long before the bigger bad things start to routinely happen as well. It takes time for societies to fall apart, to crumble. Laws matter. Order matters. If you want to know what America would be, would look like or be like if progressives ever took over the country, just go to San Francisco and look around. But be careful. Halloween by the sea has become a very scary place. Idea of how to solve your problems, legalize some drugs, 
defund the police, take away the concern about being arrested, etc. There are problems when that happens. So what are we to do? Those are the four, th- four areas I wanted to discuss. What are we to do? I've talked pretty much about the present. I'm not going to take the time, but I would strongly suggest take the time to go back and read Leviticus 26 entirely. And read Deuteronomy 28, or, 28 entirely. Because some of these things are mentioned. We're on the front end of. There are things to come that are not happening right now. It's going to get a lot worse. There's more to come. Again, in Matthew 24, verse 8, Christ made the point that these are the beginning of sorrows. Whether it be crime, greater immorality, severe weather, famine, these things that we see see right now, there's more to come. The beginning of sorrows yet in front of us. Perhaps in our society, you know, there's there's a certain, if I might say, risk in going through things like this and saying that we are in the time of the end. You know, many of us are surprised that we're still here in 2021. I was baptized in 1968. I had no idea <laughs> that I would still be here and live to be the age I am right now. We had sermons similar to this in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, 90s. So we don't know for sure. We don't know the exact day. We'll we'll read that. We don't know exactly. But when we see these kinds of signs, brethren, we should be stirred. We should be reminded of what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the world. Perhaps we've reached a tipping point. And if you know, hopefully you know what that means, but we, we reach a point where there's a point of no return. You, you go to the top and you start on the downhill side and you, there is no going back. We have the phrase, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Hard to reverse things. We have these major, uh, efforts by a group who want to reverse Abortion and take away its legality. I personally don't think that'll ever happen. But that's putting the genie back in the bottle. Very difficult to do. There are things that have been done, been done now that very likely will never be undone. I mentioned earlier about going back to normal. What is normal? Was Satan's, or is Satan's world ever normal? Now, there's nothing wrong with, and we heard the sermon last week, you know, from Mr. Ames, that there's nothing wrong in, in, in God's, uh, Christ said, uh, he wants us to have an abundant life. To do things that we would use the word normal uh, is a, be appropriate. But going back to what it was two years ago, that was still Satan's world. We don't want to go back to a different model of Satan's world. Now, I don't, I don't think Satan is going to relent on this matter. We know that. 
What's ahead of us is just more of the same of what we've seen in the last two or three decades. And you go back even to the 1980s and 1990s where this idea of converting or getting America to accept immorality, to make it normal, to where we, we accept it and not discussed, but normal, the old normal is still, was still Satan's world. We want a different world. We want the kingdom of God. That's why we resist the world. Why we come out of the world in order to be part of God's family and implement, institute, guide, serve in his kingdom, helping mankind. But there is more to come. The beginning of sorrows tells us that there is more to come. So let's, let's look at what here as we spend a few minutes, what happened with Christ Let's turn over to Luke 20. If we want to think about normal being a few years ago or three or four years ago, and this is the new normal that we are experiencing today, maybe with, uh, another phrase we have would be fairly fairly common is, this is normal on steroids. (laughs) Difficult time. But Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. What happened to Christ? Verse 19, and the chief priest and the scribes, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, to somehow grab him. But they feared the people. For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So what he had spoken in the previous verses, it was condemning them. And they would like to have found a forceful way of getting at him. But they were afraid to do so. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. That they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So they sought to trick Christ to catch him in some sort of phrase that would be uh, by which he could be condemned civilly and politically uh, to, the, to those who are in charge. Over in Mark chapter 12, of course, Christ was wiser and smarter than any of, of his detractors. Mark 12 Again, verse 12. Just a similar similar account. They sought to lay hands on him. They feared the multitude. He had spoken the parable against them. But they left him and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. He just kept trying. And it does appear from the accounts, that you go through the Gospels, that somehow or other, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those, the, the, the priests, the, the, the uh, spiritual leaders of Judah at that time, Judea, they had a, apparently, uh, must have had a, a small army <laughs> of followers to go out and follow Christ. To always ch- listen to what he was saying and tra- try to find a reason that they could get at him spiritually or otherwise. So it, one thing leads to another. And, of course, in laying hands on him, that may be a, a nice way of what we find over in John chapter 5. Verse 
John chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 18, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. This was part of their motivation. This was this had become an obsession with them to get rid of this man who was criticizing them, taking away their followers. They sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They, they, they thought that was blasphemy. And they maybe thought it was justified to do this based on their misunderstanding of God's word. But they sought to kill him. It was their effort. In John chapter 15. Again, verse 18. John 15, verse 18. He now gets personal. Because he says here, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So they sought to kill Christ. They literally hated him and felt justified in trying to kill him. And I'm sure felt justified in finally succeeding when it was finally allowed and part of God's plan. Christ was hated. This verse tells us that if we follow Christ, you and I are going to be hated. Now, I don't think anybody really enjoys being hated. There are some that don't care. I mean, the, 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 those that want to be in power, those that want to have influence, they really don't care. Certain people hate them as long as they get their way. But for those of us here, I just have to believe that we, no, we don't really want anyone to hate us. But there are going to be people who will hate you and me. We're in the beginning of sorrows, some of these things. We didn't even discuss, as I mentioned earlier, not even discuss the rumors of wars but and what's going on in various parts of the world. How many, the war in Syria has been going on for years. How long were we in Afghanistan? Almost two decades. And that was after the Russians tried it for 12, for 10 years. They finally figured out it didn't work. I say Russians, Soviet Union at the time. They withdrew, and now we're withdrawing, and there are probably some others who would want to fill that vacuum for whatever reason. Lots of problems, beginning of sorrows that are out there. We didn't even discuss that major element. That was on purpose. But the beginning of sorrows tells us that at some point, you and I are going to be resented greatly. Luke 21 Verses 16 through 17. 21, verses 16, 17. Verse 16 is a bit scary. You think about what we are to do. We'll come to that in a moment. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Verse 17, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. To be labeled a Christian, you will be a, we would be abhorred by everyone. That's a pretty intimidating thought. 
beginning of sorrows will lead to this. Verses 16 and 17. What are we to do? I want to read from some articles. And actually, these are a couple of letters in an article from Mr. Ames and Mr. Weston. Frankly, they say it better than I, I could dream up the words. Mr. Ames in his co-worker letter, just recently, the July letter, he writes, as we see these sobering trends, we're reminded to watch for the future in time ride of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who will kill one-fourth of the earth's population, based on Revelation 6, 1 through 8. We must be prepared for prophets, for prophetic events leading up to the Great Tribulation. They will suddenly shock the Western world. Be sure to read Mr. Wesson's Tomorrow's World magazine article, Then Comes Sudden Destruction. Brethren, we must never let down our alertness and watchfulness in these end times. We must always remember Christ's words. Take heed to yourself. And he mentions the verse. I'll turn there in a few minutes. But he mentions here we should read Mr. Weston's article. So I printed it off. I'll read part of it. This is, again, from 2019. He writes, Gradually, then suddenly. This is from the, and he writes here, The world order, as we have known it for the last 75 years, is breaking down. So that goes back then to 1945, 75 years. It was back to the end of World War II. So there was a, a reorganization to Europe. There was a reorganization to uh, the Western world, the, the NATO came kind of submit with what happened with the Soviet Union, what all. There was a, a new setup. Now, things are changing. Consider the British exit from the European Union, a body already in crisis economically and politically. Right-wing groups are rising in Hungary, Poland, and Italy. Then later in the article, it puts a paragraph below. He goes, the end of this age will come suddenly and for most unexpectedly. God willing, won't be part of that. Yet those who are watching and will not be caught unaware, our world is going morally and financially bankrupt, gradually, then suddenly. Soon will follow. How many of us will recall the experience of the 1930s generation? Historian Kagan observed, as I quoted in a previous issue of the magazine, they learned, this quote, they learned... And we have now forgotten that when things start to go wrong, they go wrong very quickly. That once a world order breaks down, the worst qualities of humanity emerge from under the rocks and run wild. And I've mentioned more than once, I think, and uh, speaking that one of the most stirring books I've ever read is The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And it was just amazing to read that. And, and I think I mentioned, I, the reason I read it was my son gave it to me as a gift and I felt obligated. But afterward, reading a book that's just about this thick, I, it was just an amazing book. How so few, so few people could scream loud enough and threaten loud enough 
to literally change an entire country and eventually an entire continent and devastate millions of people and bring the world into a world war. All started with a relatively few people, the Nazi party. So when the world order starts to break down, bad things are not far behind. And Mr. Wakefield, at my request, he didn't read all of Mr. Weston's greetings today in the world ahead. Because I wanted to read this paragraph. It's truly remarkable how so many threads are coming together to present a picture leading to the end time and affecting some of our brethren here in the United States, South Africa, and elsewhere. Leviticus 26 points out that when we come to despise God's commandments, terror or terrorism will follow. And following that would be wasting disease. The scourge of COVID has not gone away. And then it says in Leviticus that we will sow our seed in vain, for all our enemies shall eat it. Mr. Gene Hilgenberg reported that there are shortages of food supplies, as he was having trouble getting some basic products for the camp. We see the western United States and Canada experiencing extreme drought conditions and high temperatures never before seen. Serious floods have ravaged parts of Europe and China. South Africa, countries in the Middle East and parts of Asia are facing internal turmoil. See below for news about the situation in Haiti, which Mr. Wakefield referred to it. We are now in a cyber war with many bad actors disrupting basic services, such as water treatment plants. The big picture shows that this world is entering a time of trouble. Now is no time to sleep. While we pray for God's kingdom to come, we need to realize that very difficult times are ahead. So what are we to do? Let's turn over to Mark 13. Mark 13. Verse 29. Just read a couple of verses here in closing. Mark 13, verse 29. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it's near. Know that it's near. And at the doors. Skip down to verse 32. But on of that day and hour, no one knows. Can't be absolute about it. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. But take heed. Watch and pray. There are no easy answers to this. Except those words have great meaning. To watch. We get this admonition ever so often. But it should never just bounce off of our, our skulls. We need to watch what's going on in the world around us and we should be affected by it and want to change it. Take heed, watch, and pray. Pray that we will discern what's happening. That we have the discernment to see and understand what's, what's going on. How to better serve God and how to better prepare for His kingdom. Watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. We can't take a day off. We can't take a day off from prayer. We can't take a day off from praying about God's work, doing our job. We have to do it every day. Take heed. 
Watch and pray because we don't know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who has left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore. He's comparing himself with what he's doing. He said it's like taking care of something physical, but Christ is the one admonishing us to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening and midnight, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. For what I say to you, I say to all, every one of us, every day, be mindful of this, to watch. Watch and pray. I've gone through these things, none of these things, even by them singly, might make much of an impression at any given time. But if we see these things in mass and we recognize and we stay tuned to what's going on, brethren, you and I should be stirred to really pay close attention to what's going on around us and preparing ourselves for God's kingdom. Now, while we do that, it's certainly okay to live a good life. Christ wants us to be happy. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to enjoy the life he has given us. But he does not want us to let any of these physical things with which he blesses us to distract us from the big picture, being mindful that he is about to bring the world to its knees. And whether that happens in my lifetime or longer, somewhat irrelevant, because it's our individual lives that matter to each of us to be a part of God's kingdom. We should be aware, we need to be aware that God is going to bring the world to its knees, and the world will be on the brink of destruction and annihilation before Christ returns. Hard times are ahead. With God's help, if we're watching and we're praying, then we will be prepared for those times.